I never thought for myself. It was all a central plan all along from 1972 to 2002. It all unraveled. That's when I realized this venture capital thing is not for me. What am I doing here in Geneva? What the hell am I doing with my life? Who do I want to go to? Do I want to be a big finance guy? Do I want to be a billionaire? Do I want to be in business even? Do I, what, do, what the hell do I want to do? And I didn't know. The path for Aleph Henestrosa, Dartmouth 96, had always been clear. Best grades, best schools, find your way to the top. When he woke up to the fact that he had never really been thinking for himself, he recognized he needed a new compass. It just took a little time to find it. Find out how reflecting on how we make our choices is sometimes just as important as the choices we ultimately make on today's Roads Taken with me, Leslie Jennings Rowley. So I'm here today with Aleph Henestroza, and we're going to talk about a road that weaves both personal and professional um, from even actually before we left college and how that personal history kind of helps guide us at times and uh, that we can reflect on decisions kind of based on that. So thanks so much for being here. Thanks to you, Leslie, for having me. So we tend to ask the same questions each time as we kick these off, as I will do to you. So when we were in college, who did you think you were? And as we were getting ready to leave it, who did you think you were going to become? Wow. It takes me back to the green. Imagine myself walking along towards Barry Baker Library and imagining myself, my future self, becoming a political figure in Mexico. Someone who would do good for the country, someone uh, who would change many things, someone who would be transcendental in the development of the country, a development that had been initiated shortly before I uh, attended Dartmouth. And there was uh, still a lot of hope among the younger generations that things were headed in the right direction. Obviously, it didn't turn out that way. Yeah, but I think that's kind of the point of this show many times is that life doesn't always end up the way we think it will. And yet there are moments within that life that we can look to and try to figure out, well, why did I make this decision or how am I going to pivot? So let me, though, I I know a little bit about your background. So let me take you back a little bit before we graduated. Um, And I know there was a family um, moment that really has shaped the rest of your life. Yeah. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, well, um, before college, my life was planned centrally. My uh, childhood and teenage years were kind of like a communist regime, but well-planned communist regime like China, not like the Soviet Union, right? Like the current China, not like the Maoist China, but the current, the way <laughs> things are currently planned in China, it's competent management. <laughs> okay. My father... Uh, was a bit of an authoritarian figure, but he was—he also had great vision for myself, and um, and uh, he, from the very beginning, he always wanted me to go to an Ivy League school because he thought that all the idealistic and technocratic leaders of Mexico had all gone to places like Harvard, like Penn, like Yale, and uh, his son obviously needed to go to this kind of institution, and uh, so he always pushed me, pushed me hard. Uh, through high school to always be a very good student, to always get top grades, uh, so that eventually 
I could make it into this sacred pantheon of uh, good Mexican leaders. So I always knew that I had to make it into the Ivy League, and I always knew that I had to go to one of these schools uh, if I didn't want to disappoint my father to death. And so my life had been very carefully planned all the way until his death in 1995, my junior year, when uh, it all unraveled and I had to start thinking for myself. Yeah. So you're thinking for yourself, but you do know that there was this like grand plan for you to become this leader and, you know, change things. And so what was the thought process that you took yourself through making that first step off of a college campus? Well, upon, upon, upon the death of my father, I remember it happened spring term 1995. I, uh, you know, that, that, that term threw me off. Um, and all of a sudden I was just like a guy who didn't have a central plan anymore. What now? So I was, I, it was a time when, you know, you're heading, you're, you're a junior heading into senior year and you're hearing all, all these things about corporate recruiting. And I have never, ever in my life thought that I would go corporate. I, I mean, frankly, I didn't even know what the good companies were. I didn't know anything about investment banking, consulting, the Fortune 500, nothing. Uh, I had never even thought about that possibility. And I, and I heard uh, friends and colleagues talking about it and how, you know, corporate recruiting was the big thing coming come fall of, of senior year. And uh, I thought, you know, maybe I'll give this, this corporate recruiting thing a go. And I started informing myself about all these big corporations, right? JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, McKinsey, whatever. And I just went with the flow. People say, okay, if you're smart, you're getting into Goldman Sachs. If you're smart, you're getting into McKinsey. And it kind of like felt like home to me that somebody else was telling me mm. where I should be going, where yeah. the right places were. Just like my father always told me, you have to go to an Ivy League school, preferably Harvard. I didn't make it into Harvard, so I made it into Dartmouth. Uh, but it was still okay for him. Now somebody else was telling me, oh, you have to get into Goldman Sachs. You have to get into McKinsey. And I said, well, it's, this consulting thing sounds a little bit better than investment banking, so I'll go for McKinsey. And so I ended up there. Yeah. Well, and people do that. And there's a stair step and a plan and it it can feel comfortable. Um, Yet I know that you're not there now. Um, So talk me through those years and how, you know, the periods of growth and also how you realize that this might not be how you would spend the rest of your career. Well, look, you know, um, when my father died, I still needed to to find a compass in my life. I still needed to replace him with some sort of central planning of my own, driven by research and driven by what people were saying, et cetera. And that's, that's the only reason I ended up at McKinsey. I, I, I didn't know what McKinsey was. I didn't know what consulting was. I, I didn't know if I would like it. Nothing. I, all I knew was that people were talking about it and they, it was a highly respected name. So therefore, you know, loyal to my tradition of always aiming for the top for, for the top institutions, I decided to aim for that, and, and, and lucky for me, I, I made it in. And so I started my journey, and uh, all of a sudden, all my life I thought I would be a politician, and I would be in public service, I would be someone like Barack Obama, and all of a sudden I find myself in the, in the heart of, of, of the corporate world. 
in a company that embodies corporate more than any other. <laughs> so, 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 yeah. And then McKinsey also has a way of directing its analysts towards quote unquote greatness by enrolling you into the, an analyst program that eventually leads you to business school. Right. And, uh, same thing, right? Everybody, everybody in my analyst class going like, oh my God, if I could get into Stanford, if I could get into Stanford, oh my God, oh my God. And now, so what, what did I do? I am for Stanford and I made it in. <laughs> and so I got, I got drawn deeper and deeper and deeper into this corporate world that I had never intended to, to be a part of. And all of a sudden I'm in freaking Stanford Business School with no intention whatsoever in 1994 to ever be there. <laughs> and so, yeah, I arrived at Stanford having no idea what I wanted to do after that. I knew I didn't want to go back to McKinsey and maybe I would regain my compass. But there, people were talking. It was the, it was the days of the pre-bubble back in 2000. And everybody was talking. Then Google was still a, a startup, right? Facebook that didn't exist yet. Things like Excite and uh, Alta Vista and Lycos were like the bigger companies of the day. <laughs> you know, can you, can you remember? <laughs> yeah, I do. Yeah. Things like E-Trade were like hot commodities, right? eBay was starting up. And everybody in my Stanford class was saying, oh my God, it, it's so hard to get into venture capital. It's so hard to get into VC. I wish somebody, I mean, I wish that somebody <laughs> gave me a chance. And I was like, okay, what are the good VCs? Oh, all that Kleiner Perkins and Sequoia and whatever <laughs> and what have you. Back then I had a Danish girlfriend who wanted me to go to Europe and venture capital was not a thing in Europe, but I needed to go to Europe because otherwise she would dub me. So I started doing research into, into European venture capital and I couldn't find anything. Uh, and then these guys came along to Stanford and their, their name was Index Ventures and uh, nobody was paying attention to them. I was the only one who went to their presentation. And uh, of course, they took a liking to me. So I ended up at Index Ventures, which now is one of the top five venture capital firms in the world. But back then, it was just a little startup trying to pioneer venture capital in Europe. And so they took me in. So all of a sudden, to the big surprise of all my classmates, I made it into the venture capital industry because that was the thing to do. So up until the year 2002, when I, when I left Index Ventures, I never thought for myself. It was all a central plan all along from 1972 to 2002. It all unraveled in 2002, which I, which I see as the most hurtful and most difficult year of my entire life. That's when I realized this venture capital thing is not for me. What am I doing here in Geneva? What the hell am I doing with my life? Who do I want to go to? Do I want to be a big finance guy? Do I want to be a billionaire? Do I want to be in business even? Do I, what, do, what the hell do I want to do? And I didn't know. And it was a difficult time to be in venture capital because it was the post-bubble years. And we weren't doing deals. We weren't doing anything interesting at Index Ventures. I mean, right now, Index Ventures... My God, business, business school graduates around the world would love to work there because it's one of the biggest VCs in the world and they're doing deals left, right, and center. But back then in 2000, between 2000 and 2002, I was just putting out fires for other companies that have been invested in before I got there, before the year 2000, that had promised before the bubble. And now we're all going bust. So it was not a nice time 
to be in venture capital. It was not a nice time. This glamorous profession of venture capital didn't turn out to be what I expected. I wasn't doing deals. I wasn't willing and dealing. I was trying to rescue things that I didn't even invest in. So obviously that depressed me a little bit. And uh, I went into a soul searching process that ended, ended in me leaving that company. In hindsight, if I had never left Index Ventures, probably today I would be one of a prominent figure in the global venture capital scene. But uh, I decided to leave uh, because my mental health wasn't the best at the moment. And that's when it finally, it, it finally, it finally sunk in. It's like, I'm in Europe, far away from home. My girlfriend eventually dumped me, so I was alone. <laughs> and I have no idea what I want to do in my life. I got these two big degrees, and I still don't know what the hell I want to do. Obviously, those degrees help to, to get you back on your feet. And uh, all I knew is that I like living in Geneva, and I wanted to stay there, at least for a while. But there's nothing else in Geneva. I mean, if you want to go into private banking or if you want to go into the watch industry, there's nothing much going on in Geneva. Chocolate. So the only, th the only thing that's going on that could possibly be of any value for me was the United Nations. I had to go somewhere in the UN. So I ended up at the Global Fund to fight AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria. And that's when, when my reinvention really started. So up until now, um, you've been like choosing things because somebody's talking about it. Um, but now it's like, who's the biggest game in town? Because I like this town. Um, so was there anything that particularly drew you to that work in that division? Yeah, I mean, look. For the first time, I made a decision that had nothing to do with the prestige of the organization or, you know, trying to always aim for the best industry or the best institution or the best whatever. I had been doing that since I yeah. got accepted yeah. at Dharma or even before that. I was always aiming for these big name institutions, big name universities, big name companies, big name industries. And all of a sudden, I find myself trying to do good for the world, something that took me back a little bit to my original plan. Not quite, because I never imagined myself being an international official of any sort or being a diplomat at all. So I gave it a go, and my life ever since has been one of adventure awesome. and entrepreneurship. So your mental health rebounded like after you decided to kind of like take this stand and decide, yeah. like, I'm going to do things out of passion and interest, right? Yeah, I was, I was in the place where I wanted to be. I liked Geneva as a place to live. I eventually found an, another, another girlfriend that made me happy. And I, was, and I was doing something that, yeah, maybe it wasn't, it wasn't making me tons of money, but, but it was taking me to places that I would never otherwise have gone in my life. I mean, I mean this, this job took me to places like, Jesus, Cameroon, Guinea-Bissau, Kenya, you know, Senegal, you know, Nepal, Ecuador, Paraguay, places that I would have never been to this day if I had not been in international service and uh, going, going to such countries uh, on missions and uh, trying to get the programs going. So, yeah, I did, I did four years at the Global Fund. I was one of the founding members of the organization. Right now, that, that organization is one of the biggest most important funds of public health in the world, if not the most important. And at the young age of 30, I was already running all of Latin America for that. It, it wasn't the title that, that turned me on. It was, 
it was mostly the work, right? Trying to see, like getting these funds over to countries and trying to, to help these countries manage these, these funds well and having some sort of impact against, the, uh, against these three pandemics. It's, uh, it's just amazing. I know a lot about malaria and about, and, and about HIV and about uh, uh, tuberculosis. It's kind of like trivia pursuit right now because if you ask me about things like right now in the COVID pandemic, you know, I know how pandemics work and I know how, how to battle these pandemics and how to get communities and health systems organized against them, et cetera, et cetera. So it's kind of like the situation we're in takes me back to those years when I was traveling around the world and implementing these, these programs for the Global Fund. Yeah. So tell me about the next step after the fund. Yeah, well, I, I, after the fund, I, I, like this, I, I like what I was doing at the fund. So when I left the fund, frankly, out of disagreements with one of my bosses, I decided to keep doing this on my own. And that's when, when I became an entrepreneur and, and have not looked back ever since. When I left the institution, I, I decided to keep consulting for all these countries that I had once visited as a, an official of the Global Fund. And many of them hired me as an independent consultant to help them manage these funds. So before I was the guy making them sign papers and chasing them around to get results. So now I was at the, at the other uh, side of the, of the desk trying to actually manage or help manage these things. I, again, that, that, that era of my life took me to places like South Sudan back in 2007, when it was still, uh, you know, their independence was still not a given and it was still being negotiated and there were still traces of war. And, uh, you know, going to Juba back in 2007, is, it, it's like going to Mars. The, the level of development of that place back then, it was just, there was nothing, you know? And the impact that you could have, you could just see that, you know, every consultant, every person who was there, it was just, they were just full of joy because it was one of the few places in the world where everything, anything that you did could make a huge impact. Open a gas station, that would make a huge impact. Open a pharmacy would make a huge impact. Build a hotel would make a huge impact because there was nothing down there. It was a war-torn place trying to find its way back into the world uh, with a population scarred by war and you know, there we were trying to build things, you know, magnificent opportunities. It's just like, man, I haven't made much money in my life, but the experiences that I have, I wouldn't trade them for anything. Well, yeah. I mean, when you think back to that younger self, I mean, you thought you were going to be this big political figure and changing lots of things, but you have changed lots of things and been transformational in the work that you've done, or at least, you know, kind of helped with others' uh, ability to, to do that. Yeah, well, yeah, I can say that for other countries, I have done a little bit of that work. <laughs> but, but now you're home and you're doing other things. So tell me a bit about what you're doing now. Well, where, where I am now, well, it's... Uh... That's uh, completely, it's a completely different thing. I, I own a chain of, you won't believe this, I, I own a chain of hair removal studios in Mexico City. I know. <laughs> the name of the chain is Wax Revolution. I started it in the year 2010 with my wife. After I, I decided that this, this, this life of globetrotting was very interesting, but it was never going to lead to a stable family life. So if I wanted to get married, I got married late in life, right? In the year 2012. And uh, if I wanted to get married, have kids, have a home, 
I need to stop doing this. So right after I worked with Tony Blair in Kuwait in the year 2009, I decided to do something else. And uh, going corporate was not an option because I'm the kind of guy who can't have a boss. <laughs> it's already been proven. It's, it's not going to work out. Eventually, I'm going to get fired or set aside because my personality doesn't allow me to be institutional. So I, did, I said, you know, I can't globetrot anymore and, and I don't want to be a corporate guy because I can't behave. So what do I do? I have to start my own business. But what business? Like most, like most things in my life, I didn't know. Didn't have an idea, you know. Um, but, you know, back at Stanford, I remember having written a paper for my entrepreneurship class, which uh, talked about a company where you would hook up with your classmates and, uh, and, uh, and, and see pictures of what they were doing with their lives. <laughs> Back then, there, were, there, there was nothing that, like, like you, for instance. Oh, I wonder what Leslie's doing right now. Well, 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 yeah. We have lost touch. There is no, there is no website, or there's no, there's nothing that can tell me what Leslie's doing. I'd like to see pictures of her in her wedding, and, and and to see her kids playing little little league, you know. And I wrote that paper, and the and the professors went like, "Dude, you have to do this. You cannot go corporate. You have to do this thing." And I was like, yeah, but who's going to fund me? I mean, is the bubble. Yes, that's the, I invented Facebook in the year. And here you are and with no idea in 2012. And yeah, decided to look for things. And, you know, I was in Mexico and I was saying, okay, what can we do here? And one thing led to the other, research, et cetera. And here we are uh, with a chain of hair removal salons. Uh, we have 17 stores right now. Yeah, I make pretty good money with that. I think I'm I'm financially secure, finally. And it gives you that stability of not globetrotting and having a family. Yeah, exactly, exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no problem. I mean, my financial problems have been solved. Um, I'm not a I'm not a gazillionaire or anything like that, but but you know, if I keep growing this chain, my idea is to make this uh make make this for hair removal what Starbucks is for coffee. One on right? every corner. Not one in every corner because you can't, the market is not big enough to have one wax revolution in every corner, but maybe one in every neighborhood. Okay. Right? Um, and, and so, like, just like Starbucks is synonymous with coffee to go, uh, maybe wax revolution one day will be synonymous with uh, excellence in hair removal services. And that will have been my contribution to the betterment of the corporate world. Yeah. You know, having. Having, having, having built a brand and, uh, and having grown it to a decent level. Yeah, but not just, you know, your customers, but your employees and the community that I'm sure you're supporting. That's what business is. Yeah, and I know that the next Facebook will come to my head at some point. And, um, you know, when it does, I will have the maturity, the experience and the financial resources to actually make it happen this time. I'm sure you will. I I have no doubt that really, um, it's just, it's such a story. Okay, last question, I guess. Um, so if you could go back to that younger self, knowing what you know now, um, what might you tell him, not to necessarily change the outcome, but just to kind of prepare him for life ahead? I would tell him to go ahead with his idea to take Blitzmail public. <laughs> or that later one about Facebook. 
Yeah, no probably I would have. If you t- you told me to go back to Dartmouth at Dartmouth, I was so enamored by Blitzmail, and I thought, how come every company doesn't have this? How come every single company and institution around the world doesn't have a Blitzmail? You know, it's like, and I thought, you know, maybe I could I could go around knock doors and sell this email system to corporations. That was my thinking back in. Uh, at Dartmouth. So yeah, if I could go back to Dartmouth, I would say to the guy, do the email thing and then do the Facebook thing. Right. Well, Olive, thank you so much um, for sharing the story. I am so pleased that you have found your inner compass and don't have to be as reliant on authoritarianism or public opinion um, to guide your way. And I just, I look forward to hearing about the next phase of life for you. So thank you. Well, remember, remember, I have been like that since 2002. It only, only my my process has been very chaotic and haphazard, right? I think I have some order in like it's it, it's it's two it's two things. First, first I need to get I needed to get away and think for myself. That happened in 2002, but since then it has been very chaotic to find my compass. I mean, I've been trying hard, and it has taken me all over the world and doing all kinds of things. But now I feel like I know where I'm going. And, uh, you know, learn to be humble. I know I'm not going to be the most important person in the world. I'm not going to be the richest. I'm not going to be the most transcendental, the most famous. I'm not going to be anything like that. But, uh, you know, I can be a good father to my daughter, you know, and I can, I can leave something behind of value. That's what I would say to, to future, to, to current generations of Dharma students. Like, you can do whatever the hell you want. You know, I mean, that could have been, big time in venture capital, or I could have invented Facebook, or I could have, you know, sold email after after college, or it's just life is a journey and you just have to take that journey and enjoy it. And really, if I died today, if I dropped that today, I would say my journey has been a lot of fun, a lot of fun. And I've done magical things and and have, have, have seen things because I dared to do them. Like, like, I know this is going to sound cliche, but it's exactly what Robert Frost means by taking the road less traveled. I have taken the road less traveled. And it hasn't led me to riches and, and, and fame, but it has led me to a, an amazing life. I'm so happy about that. Thank you so much. That was Aleph Henestroza, founder and CEO of Wax Revolution, a rapidly expanding, but I don't think we can say growing, hair removal chain headquartered in Mexico City. Find him at waxrevolution.com. And find me, Leslie Jennings Rowley, with another guest on the next Roads Taken. We'd love for you to subscribe and review us where you find your podcasts or drop us a line, won't you? Via email at roadstakenshow at gmail.com or through the contact us link at roadstakenshow.com. We really want to hear from you.